Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live at Calvary Church in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media or to tune into our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Now here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. And amen. All right, open your Bibles, would you, to Genesis chapter 20. Genesis chapter 20. And I have entitled our message, Your Flesh Will Do Great Damage. Your flesh life will do great damage. And I, I believe it's an understatement to say that life is full of ups and downs, especially for the Christian. Anyone who's lived in Jesus for a short amount of time knows that there are ups and downs or victories and defeats. Uh, The woman, the man that follows God is gonna make great strides. And you may walk in here today or tune in and you have been making great victorious strides in your relationship with Jesus, but you also know that in the very next breath or the very next decision, You can make huge mistakes and big blunders. And to me, it's a great joy. And let me just ask the question that way. Isn't it a great joy to know right now that we have a gracious, patient, and loving God? It's a good thing. Together, the Lord weaves all of our ups and downs together, sorts them out, uses them for his glory, and we're reminded that nothing is wasted by God. Nothing. So, so whatever it is you're facing right now, whatever difficulty is going through your heart and your life, you know, or as the Bible says in Romans 8, 28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. And we have to remember that it's not just our willingness to sin or our willingness to compromise or it's not just that. But we need to also remember with spiritual progress, there is much spiritual opposition. I I don't think we can conclude for a moment that the enemy of our souls is pleased or happy in any way with the progress that's made in your life, with the victories that you're experiencing, with the ups of your life. So there's great spiritual opposition. We can expect it. We can anticipate it. We know it's coming. Again, if you're taking notes, you can jot this down in 1 Corinthians chapter 16 in verse 9. I'll read it to you from the New Living. Paul's writing and he says, he says in 1 Corinthians 16, 9, there is a wide open door for a great work here. And he's talking about a position, a place, of course, but I think by application you go, man, God is ready to do a great thing. Open doors. But there are many adversaries, the New King James says, And then Paul personalizes it when he says, there's many that oppose me. And there's opposition. There's difficulty. In John 16, 33, again from the New Living, Jesus said, I've told you all this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you'll have many trials and sorrows, but take heart because I've overcome the world. And we're reminded not only is God gracious and patient and loving, but he's our protector and our shield. And you know, I've noticed over the years that as we live our lives, we all go through pretty much 
similar tests and trials and even tribulations, but they affect us differently. So we go through different trials and testings, but they all affect us in different ways. For some, the trial that you're in right now is making you stronger and it's giving you a new perspective of the strength of the Lord or abiding in Christ or depending on him. But for others, trials I've seen bury them and destroy them and pull them away. What was really just designed to deal with the flesh and draw out more faith actually turned out to be, the response was in the flesh. And so now you're not only dealing with the temptation and the trial, now you're dealing with the consequences of the bad decisions made while in that trial. I heard it said this way once, for some trials seem to make them better for the battle and for others, trials seem to make them bitter in retreat and running away. I share those contrasts because in chapter 20 here of Genesis, we are shifting back our attention to Abraham in a focus from Lot. And Lot and Abraham are two very different men. One walks by faith, Abraham, and one walked by his sight or by flesh. It got him into big trouble. Lot ends up losing everything, and that can't be overstated. We kind of use everything, and we, we use those, those broad words and don't really mean everything when we use it, but I mean it now. He lost everything. He started out with so much. And by the time he leaves Sodom, he loses everything in a deep, painful way. And yet Abraham's contrasted. He doesn't lose anything through this. He gains a greater faith. He gains a deeper friendship and relationship. He truly did live in fellowship with God. And so you have those contrasts between Lot and Abraham, or even in people in your own life where you may have people you look up to, you respect, you follow, you like, you like to follow their example, and, and then others, you see their example, you see their life, and you go, I'm not going to go in that direction. But even the one you follow their example, you know, you have to understand, like Abraham, as good as he is in contrast to Lot, we must be reminded again, Abraham's not perfect, neither is any one of us. We're not perfect. I'm not entirely sure how that became the standard in Christianity or became the standard in our own measurements, but Abraham isn't perfect. And we've seen him fail over and over again. And chapter 20 is one of those chapters where you're going to shake your head again about Abraham. How is it that he can be known as the father of faith? How is it that he represents a friend of God? Well, he is very same as you and me. That's how you can be a man of faith, a woman of faith, a friend of God. He lived by faith and he trusted God even in the failures. And he got back up. And this is like, this is like the key that I found as a place of success. You just get back up one more time, then you fall. You don't stay down, but you keep moving forward, humbly, repentant, Trusting God in the new season. And so just to set you up in chapter 20, if you haven't read ahead, you're going to read through some things Abraham does here again, and you're going to shake your head and just be careful. What's wrong with you, Abraham? Actually, you should read this chapter in the mirror and say, what's wrong with you getting upset again? 
What are you thinking? Didn't you learn your lesson, Abraham? Well, go ahead and look in the mirror. Haven't you learned your lesson yet? And before we beat up Abraham too much, or Peter, or any of the men that have failed, or the women have failed in Scripture, we have to notice a similar pattern in our own lives. Ups and downs. Victories and defeats. Falling on our face and getting back up. It's a familiar pattern that we see in ourselves. So with all that in mind, let's pick up Verse 1, chapter 20. So Abraham journeyed from there to the south and dwelt between Kadesh and Shur and sojourned in Gerar. He's going into the Philistine area, by the way. Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my, say with me, church, sister. And this is the cue to Abraham, what is wrong with you? And remember, go to the mirror. This is a familiar sin that Abraham is already failed wanton with his wife. Abimelech, it says, the king of Gerar sent and took Sarah. So he's on the move again, Abraham is. We're not given any instruction why. There's no sense of seeking the Lord or getting any direction or having some word from God. He knows what God's voice sounds like. He knows how to intercede. He knows how to pray. He knows how to ask God for help. There's no mention of that. There's just mention of him being on the move and he's heading into Philistine territory. Now, we don't know exactly why, except one thing we know for certain, he didn't receive this direction from the Lord. There could be a hint of impatience here or just continuing to move. But this is a pattern of the flesh, a set way of doing things, moving again. 30 years earlier, Abraham did the same thing. He moved without direction, and again it pops up, and again it pops up, again it pops up. Remember, Abraham, 30 years earlier in chapter 12, went down to Egypt and told Sarai to lie, saying she was his sister. And that was an example we learned of his fearfulness, a weakness of his leadership, But God restored him, you know, saved his wife, restored him, encouraged him. And what does he do again when he comes into different territory? He repeats the same lie. In 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 3, the Bible says, though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. And too often, I believe in many circles of Christianity, the devil gets more credit for the bad decisions Christians make than the Christians taking responsibility for their fleshly decisions. The devil gets blamed for all sorts of things he had nothing to do with. That it was a temptation that was sent our way and that temptation was bit and taken and and it was our responsibility. And I think a, a very quick pathway to a place of restoration, reconciliation with God is just personal responsibility especially in a culture that doesn't like to take personal responsibility. It is uh, a familiar refrain uh, in our culture to play the victim. Now, I don't know how to sort out in your life. Sometimes I don't even know how to sort out in my own life uh, where there's a true victimization, whether that's true. And, And I'm not saying in every case it's not true. But the attention shouldn't be to the victim in some situation in our in our victimization, you know, personally, but rather the victory that's ours in Christ. Trusting him with the situations in our life. Remembering the sovereignty of God. Not to learn as the culture has taught us to play the victim 
and never take real responsibility for our own bad decisions. Now, let me just clarify so it doesn't, uh, I have been sick, so I want to make sure my thinking is clear and my words are clear. I'm not speaking of a particular situation where indeed you were the victim of some violent crime or something that truly would be categorized like that. I'm talking about our sinful fleshly behavior or in a silly way, one comedian years ago would say, well, the devil made me do it. And let me just clear up biblically for you, the devil can't make you do anything. And the battle that we fight is really, we have a threefold enemy, the Bible says, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And it's the devil that orchestrates through our world system to provoke our flesh. And ultimately, friends, brothers, sisters in Christ, we are 100% responsible for our own sinful decisions. There may be a lot of other factors that we can work through and, and work on and lay before God for repentance and future avoidance of sin, But until you take personal responsibility, until what Paul would describe, you have godly sorrow, or like David demonstrated, I have sinned against you, God, and you alone, you'll never experience the true humble repentance that'll get you to the destination of forsaking sin. You'll always take a piece of it with you. You'll always take a part of it with you until you really understand the severity of your sin first toward God, and then toward others. Abraham here, he's repeating the same sin over and over again here with his wife, the one that he loves the most. He's such a place of walking, what we would call today walking in the flesh, the flesh life. Now I know if you're new to the Bible, you're new to Christianity, You think of the flesh and you almost immediately think about the skin on your bones. And sometimes the word in the Bible is used that way. But most often when the flesh is used to describe your life or behavior following Jesus, it speaks, a good way to remember the flesh is to remember this phrase. The flesh equals old sinful habits. That's not a complete description of the flesh. But when a Christian operates in what we call, what the Bible calls the flesh, he or she is operating in a natural, habitual way that is not reflective of the will of God. And so for many of us, we were saved. Uh, We were born again later in life. I was in my early 20s. So by the time I came to the place of being convicted of sin through the preaching of the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ came to die for your sins and mine, and he invited me into relationship. By the time I got to that moment in time, I had lived a long life of rebellion against God. And along the way, developed a lot of bad sinful habits on how to deal with stuff. Sinful habits that included avoidance. Sinful habits that included not being honest sinful habits that included drowning my issues in alcohol and drugs, sinful habits that included anger or taking things into my own hands. And then boom, that one midweek Wednesday night evening, just like this, responding to the gospel, I was immediately born again. And the Bible says I'm a new creation in Christ. Old things have passed away. But one of the things that wasn't changed was my physical brain, spiritually a new man. But physically, you couldn't tell the difference. 
Physically, you could look at me from one moment to the next and I had all the physical attributes that I had the moment before I was born again. And so spiritually now, I'm alive. I'm awakened to God. Spiritually, I now can understand the Bible. Because did you know the Bible itself says it can't be understood by anyone that isn't saved in relationship with God? That's why people get so frustrated with the Bible. That's why when you tell and give a gift of a Bible to an unbelieving friend or coworker, you direct them right to the gospel of John because God uses supernaturally the gospel of John to bring about faith and an awareness and a conviction of sin in unbelievers. And he will use everything about the life of Jesus to bring a person right to the end. And that's what the gospel of John is, to build faith, to bring people to faith. Uh, it's a beautiful gift that God's given. So when you give uh, a Bible, um, point people to the gospel of John. It's the most understandable and you follow along Jesus. So when you think to the time you were born again, physically no major change, spiritually you're alive, which began a battle. And the Bible describes that as walking in the spirit, that's walking in the power of God or walking in the flesh. And I mean, if you were able to spend some time today, no matter if you had a good or a bad day, I'm certain you could highlight something that you did or said or thought today that reflected an old sinful habit pattern. The way you've always handled things. The way that you revert to. Uh, some of you, you avoid. So, you know, you withdraw. You don't want to deal with it. And that worked for you, sort of, I guess, kind of, in, when you were in the world. But it really didn't work for you then. And it definitely doesn't work for you now. Because if you have conflict with someone, you have an issue with someone, Jesus said the spirit way is you go to them, you and them alone, you share your grievance. If it's a brother or sister, if they hear you, you've won your brother. If it's an unbeliever, you, they get to witness the power of the Holy Spirit trying to resolve something that they're probably not used to. But if you blow it off and you go gossip about them and you get upset with them and you don't try to solve it, that's the flesh. Or Abraham, he doesn't quite have the spirit life that you and I have in the new covenant, but he does have a contrast of following God. He knows what it is like to hear God, to obey God, to intercede. He has a personal relationship with God or this. And to lie again about his wife, I think we can all agree, was not from the Lord. Can I get an amen on that? So you, as quick as you are for Abraham, learn to be quick on your own. And just say, hey, you know what? It's pretty clear. What I did today, what I said today, what I thought today is not from you, God. You don't have to come clean with us and stand up and say, amen, Ed, I've got one. And amen, Ed, I've got, no, 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 no. I already know you have one. Because I do too. I already know. The point is not shame or humiliation. It's freedom. When you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It is not shame to admit that we've sinned against a holy and righteous God. Neither is it some guilt trip when we tell someone to their face, hey, will you forgive me? It's freedom. And all the things you think is freedom in your flesh is actually bondage and self-deception. And this is where Abraham is. And this reminds, us of, reminds me of our own tendencies. Abraham reminds me 
how we can be delivered and we can be cleared and we can be encouraged and we can be set back on course by God himself intervening in our lives, receiving our repentance, forgiving us, cleansing us, encouraging us, only to find ourselves making the same mistakes again. We struggle with the flesh like Abraham because this is part of the battle. That's why the Bible tells us not to make any provision for the flesh. Because man, anytime you feed the flesh, it's more hungry. It's never satisfied. It never sits down like, a, like after a, a large Thanksgiving meal and say, oh, that was too much. The flesh never says that's too much. And it will always take you farther. And it will always take you beyond where you thought you would be. Will you ever come to that place in life where you'll, want, you'll never struggle with your flesh? No. You'll never come to that place. As a matter of fact, an indication from Paul's own life, Paul the Apostle, it seemed from his writings that the farther along that he was in the faith, the more aware of his weakness he was and the more admitting he was. So that one of the final things he writes of a man that God used so greatly, he says, I just, I'm the chief of sinners. I mean, look at me. He writes again, if you want to jot it down in Romans chapter seven about that internal struggle that he had, the things he wanted to do, he didn't do. And, and the things that he did, he didn't want to do. He just wrestled in this battle to follow Christ like you and like me. And so notice in verse three, God is going to rescue Abraham again. He says, God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, indeed, you're a dead man because of the woman whom you've taken, for she is a man's wife. But Abimelech had not come near her. And he said, Lord, which is a word of respect, will you slay a righteous nation also? Did he not say to me, she's my sister? And she even, she herself said, he's my brother. In the integrity of my heart and innocence of my hands, I have done this. I don't have a list of things like 10 things the flesh does, but if I did have a list, if I did develop it, this would be on the list. When you operate in the flesh, you hurt other people. When Christians walk in the flesh, live in the flesh, you hurt other people. And I hesitate to use this word because I don't mean it in the salvific state, but you hurt innocent people. Abimelech's just going through his life. And, you know, this was probably an, an arrangement, not a romantic arrangement with Sarah. It's probably a, a more of a political, you know, kind of aligning himself with Abraham and, and taking a wife into his harem. It, it's not like a romantic thing here. However, he, he is, he's doing what was common in the day for an unbeliever. And now coming in contact with the man of faith, coming in contact with this friend of God, through this friend of God's sinful behavior, he now has a, put Abimelech in a very bad place, in a worse place than he was before Abraham came. As I was on the radio today taking live calls, there was someone that called in anonymously to talk about the pain that hypocritical Christians, a certain group, I don't know who they were, um, but they can speak for all of our hypocrisies from time to time, but a group of 
hypocritical Christians that left a really bad taste in his son's mouth. And now those hypocritical Christians who have come and gone, and maybe they've repented, maybe they haven't, I don't know, but they moved on, but the pain has stayed. And now his son is making bad decisions and in a position where he's justifying all his bad decisions because of some group of people he met along the way that somehow misrepresented Jesus. And you know, I think don't have any uh, ability to speak into their lives or anything, but I do have ability to speak into our lives and, and our flesh damages people. It hurts people. I mean, I know God will forgive and I know we'll get through it, but also it damages people. Can you imagine getting a, waking up in the middle of the night and God says, you're a dead man. What? Yeah, you, you've got someone's wife. Well, he did, that's not what he told me. And now he's pleading for his life. I mean, here's Abraham totally, completely living in fear and in his flesh. He's even repeating a sin over which he learned an important lesson from. He's putting a man in grave danger, but God is still faithful. God is faithful to intervene and to help him. God is so completely faithful. I've been using this phrase in my mind. God is so completely faithful and utterly reliable. There's no reason for us to test God and you know, I, I think of Paul saying something like that and looking at Abraham's life. I go, well, you know what? I just might take my chances in the flesh. Don't take your chances in the flesh. That's not what God is teaching us here. I think of what Paul wrote when he wrote, I think it was to the Romans. He, he asked the question, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And remember the new King James says, certainly not. No way. The grace of God is never an excuse to live in sin or to see how far we can get but I love the gospel of grace. It's the grace of God that saved you and me. I can think of so many times where God has blessed me when I have not been in the most least position of deserving it. As Abraham's here, he's, he's receiving the blessing of God. God is literally saving his life, rescuing him from his own decisions, delivering him from his fear. And I think of so many times God's blessings in my life, in your life, because of his grace, unmerited, undeserved, that would never, you know, we don't want to find ourselves receiving the grace of God in vain, but rather responding in love and surrender, drawing closer to him. Notice in verse five, it says, didn't he say to me, she's my sister? And she, even she herself said, he's my brother. Again, who else gets damaged here? his wife, because now she's going along with it. It says, in the integrity of my heart, this is, the, this is Abimelech, in the innocence of my hands, I've done this. And God said to him in a dream, yes, I know that you did this in the integrity of your heart, and I also withheld you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. This is God's hand in the background. The unseen hand of God. In Abimelech's life, and how about in our lives? <laughs> how about in our lives where God holds us back from sinning against him? He holds us back from sinning. And, and then you think, well, wait a minute, Ed. That start, we'll, we'll, we will, we'll read a simple truth like that in the scriptures. 
And then what we'll do, we'll complicate it by saying, well, wait a minute, what about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man? And how about we argue about that and forget about the gracious power of God in preventing you, however he wants to do it, 99% him and one part of your free will, 99% your free will, however God wants to condescend to your life and mine to hold me back from sin. There's only one response to that, and that is, thank you, Lord. Thank you for your graciousness. And how many of us in our own testimony can think back of the years where we were in rebellion, maybe some of you in a prodigal life or just things that as an unbeliever, believer, and you think back as bad as it was, just how gracious God was and not allowing it to get worse. And it just melts our hearts. And so God is speaking to him. Notice in verse seven, It says, now therefore, restore the man's wife, for he is a prophet. This is the first mention of the word prophet, of the title prophet. Abraham is a prophet. He's a spokesman for God, speaking forth the word of God to the people of God and also to the unbelieving world. So um, restore the man's wife. He's a prophet. He'll pray for you and you'll live. And if you do not restore her, know that you will surely die and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning, called all his servants, told all these things in their hearing, and the men were very afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? How have I offended you that you brought on me and on my kingdom a great sin? You have done deeds to me that ought not to be done. And Abimelech, verse 10, said to Abraham, what did you have in view that you have done this thing. And Abraham said, because I thought surely the fear of God is not in this place, that they will kill me on account of my wife. And that's where we come to the conclusion that Abraham acted in fear. Once again, same reason. He valued life. This was an example. He valued his own life over trust in God. Jesus would teach us something very similar. He who seeks to save his life will lose it. He who seeks to lose it will gain it. Notice in verse 12. Indeed, she truly is my sister. She's the daughter of my father, but not the daughter of my mother. And she became my wife. And so again, we talked about this in the last time he did this. uh, The reality of the distant relations of being half-sister, yes. But that did not take precedent over she was his wife. And that was the primary relationship, and he dismisses it. Came to pass when God caused me to wander from my father's house, verse 13, that I said to her, this is your kindness that you should do for me in every place, wherever we go, say of me, he is my brother. And so that's his explanation. God intervenes. It's a lame explanation, but that's what Abraham's feeling at the moment. Verse 14, Abimelech took sheep, oxen, and male and female servants, gave them to Abraham, and he restored Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, see, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. And Sarah, he said, behold, I've given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. Indeed, this vindicates you before all who are with you, before all the others. And thus she was reproved. So Abraham now prays to God. And God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his maidservants. And they bore children. And the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Again, I'm encouraged 
is God tells Abimelech, I didn't let you sin. I didn't let you touch her. Another picture of God's faithfulness. When victory comes for sin, how easy it is for us to take credit for the power of God in our lives. How to take credit for, well, I quit this, or I tried this, or I did this as the primary reason instead of giving God all the glory for the great things he has done. And I believe it's just one of those things we won't know how active God was in our lives preventing us from further damage until we meet him face to face. I think it's gonna be an amazing surprise of heaven of just how active God has been in our lives because he is faithful even when we are faithless. He doesn't deny himself. One last thing, would you turn over to 1 Samuel uh, chapter 15 with me, please? 1 Samuel 15. A couple last things in the next few minutes. The first one is a reminder that the fear of man brings a snare. We've seen this come up a few times in Abraham's life, and, and perhaps it's just an area where it's a continual need for us to lay before the Lord But in 1 Samuel 15, notice in verse 22, King Saul was given a command. He was told to destroy the Amalekites, destroy them all. And his response was partial obedience. And God sends the prophet Samuel to confront. And pick up with me in verse 22. 1 Samuel 15 in verse 22. Samuel tells Saul, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. And because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. And notice Saul's response in verse 24. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. The fear of man or a true cowardice that's not tempered by the presence of God by faith in our lives is a terrible thing. It led Peter to deny the Lord It leads King Saul to disobey. It leads Abraham to sell out his wife. And it can and will lead many of us into sad and miserable compromises. This unhealthy cowardice and fear, especially the fear of man. And I know it's hard and becoming increasingly more challenging to stand strong in the crowds of the world today for the things of Christ. It seems like the oppression and the resistance and the difficulties are mounting like never before. I mean, people are just, there's no more restraint. Just calling you names. I mean, getting fired in the tip of the, you know, in the, just in an a instant, um, giving bad assignments, extra work. You're ridiculed. You're made fun of. An outcast. I mean, on and on the list goes. You get kicked out of your house. You lose possessions. You lose jobs all for the name of Christ. 
But we were taught, remember, in Hebrews that there is a cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. Men that, men and women that have given their lives for the faith. I mean, we went through the whole hall of faith and then at the end, there were even people that weren't even worthy. They were unnamed of all the people that have gone before us that have faced some of the things you faced and even worse. And so today we're reminded with the flesh of Abraham that in the spirit, that we're to stand strong in the confidence of the Lord. You're to stand strong. God will be your defender. The psalmist said, when I cry out to you, Psalm 56, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. And the other thing that I see here before we close is Abraham's out of this situation. God rescues him before it gets any worse. And then he blesses him. Not only does he bless him to get him out of it, but then he leaves with all this stuff. And some of you read the Bible with that sense of you do good, you get good, you do bad, you get bad. This chapter bothers you. And chapters like it, it bothers you. Because it's very counterintuitive to how we behave and sometimes how we treat each other. But it's counterintuitive because it's very instructive of the ways of God. There is blessing in Abraham's life even through great failure. Now, in Christ, it's the same thing. It's not that we can avoid all the consequences, but sometimes God's even gracious with the consequences. But what you sow, we know you'll, what, what we sow to the flesh, we're going to reap corruption in Galatians. But also if we sow to the spirit, we'll reap everlasting life. That's truth goes both ways. But I see here that not only is he rescued, but he's given more things. Now remember, part of the story in Abraham, I mean, the significant story actually isn't about Abraham at all. It's about the seed. Messiah. God is setting up the pathway and the lineage for Messiah to come. To even rescue Abraham from this sin. <laughs> to atone for the fullness of his life, his and ours. And he didn't deserve any of these animals. They didn't belong to him. They didn't deserve any of this money. He didn't earn it. He didn't work for it. He didn't do anything except the exact opposite. Even God giving Lot away out, he doesn't take it. Although he does get out, he loses everything. But Abraham has a pattern of taking the way out that God gives him. And that leads him in a much better direction than Lot. And just like Paul said, no temptation is overtaking you except such as common to man. But with every temptation, what has God given us? A way of escape, a way out. Take it quickly. Follow Abraham's example in that. And I think with possessions, you know, in the, don't ever think your prosperity and financial successes have anything to do with your cleverness or your business dealings or how good you are at something, your entrepreneurial spirit or whatever it is that's being built up today. Don't think that. God can change anything in a moment, in a heartbeat. Your stocks could go down. Don't even look. Don't even check your 401k if you have. Don't even look. Your bank account can be emptied in a heartbeat. Everything that you trust in and it's not just for materially rich people. It's for all of us. 
that we wouldn't trust in uncertain riches, the Bible says, but to trust in the Lord. And if he wants to bless you, he'll take care of business. Ask Abraham. And if he wants to take everything away, he'll take care of business. Ask Lot. Either way, his blessings are designed to build us up spiritually and we're reminded that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. It comes to us from the Father of lights with whom there's no variation, no shadow of turning. And he trusts us, he trusts you with his resources, his gifts, his talents. That personality you have has been given to you on loan by God to be used for his glory. That that willingness to open your house, that's been given to you by God. That money, that desire, all of that is from the Lord. And it's his. We're just stewards. So for Abraham, with him, it won't take long from him to go from the valley of despair, this really difficult chapter, to the mountaintops of success. God is going to take him very quickly. And I just think of that. You might be in the valley of despair right now and you think, you know, I've, I've, been, I've been away from the Lord for 10 years. So I've got to fight back 10 years. I'm going to give it all 10 years in one day. And then I can experience the blessings of God. No, no, no. Quick. That was lame. There you go. <laughs> for you guys listening, that was a, supposed to be a snap of my fingers, but a very lame one at that. You're in that place where you think you've got to go 10 years in one day to somehow earn back God's favor. He says, no, no, no. You come today. One decision. One choice. And you'll read ahead as you see in his life how quickly he begins to live in the bounty of the blessing of God. So Father, thank you for the warnings today or the encouragement or however it is that you would want to use this text in our lives. We know that you are wanting to Help us understand the beauty and the glory and the the majesty of your faithfulness that you might give of your abundant blessings to men and women, boys and girls, children that would receive them. And Lord, as you're shaping and molding our thoughts and our thinking about you, helping us to adapt our life to the spirit life, to die to ourselves and to our flesh. May we receive Abraham's warning today. Yes, he was delivered and yes, he leaves more bountiful, but he had one more. We we never find out how hurt and damaged Sarah really was. We We don't get the full background story of what kind of conflict this continued in his home or what sort of little things he had to deal with as a man. And we just don't want to find out in our own lives, Lord. So lead us in the way of everlasting. Deliver us from foolish thinking, compromised positions, situations where we might respond in the fear of man or just fear, period. That we might walk in your confidence because we agree with you that God, you haven't given us a spirit of fear, but you've given us a spirit of power and love and even a sound mind where we can think clearly about a situation and have clarity. And I just pray right now for those that might be waiting for clarity, that you would 
God, give them the patience through the fruit of your Holy Spirit, long-suffering, to wait for the clarity, to not make any big decisions on maybe it's a bad day or a fearful day. And may you be among us, God. May we be among you, a true growing community of love and service to one another. Not just Bible students, but friends of God learning your ways, but applying them in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Church. For prayer, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. To listen to this message in its entirety or to join us for our live stream services, visit us online at calvaryco.church or download our free Calvary Church app. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.